Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you, people, I talked about it the last two episodes, but I did it. I didn't wait till Christmas Eve. I got engaged last Friday. And it was a hectic, hectic day because I had to get up at 6.15 a.m. in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And it's raining. It's raining hard. I had to drive 35 miles to Hamilton, New Jersey, get the train into Manhattan. I get off the train at Penn Station, and I'm going to take a Uber to my brother's place. He lives on 55th because it's raining to get the ring. But I got out, and it was just hectic. And, and once you get out the streets of New York, it's just there's such a good feel. So I sat there, and I walked the whole 22 blocks or whatever it was, and I, I got the ring. And then I jumped. I took an Uber back to the train station, took the train to the car, the car home. And I'm sitting there talking to my one of my best friend's wife, who's one of Joanne's best friends, about how we're going to get engaged. And I said, I'm just going to tell her, I'm just going to, as soon as she comes home from work, I'm going to do it. So unfortunately, she sits there and she wants to go to the mall before we go to dinner. And I don't want to go to the mall. I'm exhausted. But I had to try to finagle it to get her in the house. Because a lot of times, if she wants to pick me up on the way home from work to go somewhere, she just texts me to come out to the car. But I couldn't get engaged in the car. So luckily, she came in the house for some reason I looked at her and I said, I lied to you today. I didn't go to Trenton to meet a client. I went to get a ring. Will you marry me? And you know what? I'm glad I didn't wait till Christmas Eve because it made the holidays a lot better. Anyway, now that that's off my chest, we can get to my guest, my guest today. He's uh, he's awesome. I love I love his band. You know, you've heard him. If you haven't heard him, if you haven't heard any of their songs before, you're probably living under a rock. But my guest is Robin Wilson. How you doing, Robin? I am very well. And congratulations, Steve. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. Now I got to ask you something. You said earlier when I talked to you on the quick, briefly on the phone, you just got in from New York. Now, am I right to say that your studio is in Arizona and you grew up in Arizona, even though you were born in Detroit, but yet you spend like three weeks a month in New York? Um, most of that is correct. Um, I, I live in New York. I have for uh, for about. Uh, 20 years, um, but I no longer have my studio. I closed that, my studio down in uh, 2015. Okay, so now now what brought you to New York? My son lives there. Okay. So uh, that's, where, that's where my ex-wife is from, and um, that's where my son is being raised, and so I live in a place that I absolutely hate, uh, so I'm to be there for my son. So I grew, I grew up in Arizona with my dad, and uh, my mom lived in Louisiana, and she was like summer vacation. And I realized that if my marriage didn't survive, I was going to want to be where my son is, and that it was important for me to, to be there. So uh, anyway, so I live on Long Island in New York. I really don't like it. And uh, I'm hoping, I'm planning to move home to Arizona next year when he graduates from high school. That's so funny. Like, so many people I know from L.A., actors and stuff like that, are just waiting to get out of there because L.A. is just driving up the wall. And it's the same way. They're all going to, our kids have one or two years in school. And as soon as they're done, we can say, out of here. I can't wait to move back to Arizona. I miss it 
terribly. I do visit Arizona quite frequently, uh, and I'm going to be spending some time there next week. But um, mostly I'm in New York when I'm not on the road. And, uh, the, you know, the math works out that I'm in New York somewhere around 40% of the time. Okay. Yeah. Now, now you grew up in Arizona, as you said, and I believe your, your father was uh, uh, taught at a college, accounting? Yeah, he was a professor of accounting and statistics. Now, how did you become, was music around the house? How did you find your love for music? When did you start picking up the guitar and starting to sing? When did that all start happen? What age did you notice that you had a gift for it? Well, I guess I was I was eight years old when I saw Queen uh, on the Midnight Special, and uh, everyone who was growing up in the seventies remembers. You know, we didn't have MTV, we didn't have YouTube. The only way you could see the bands you were hearing on the radio, other than live concerts, was uh, on television shows like uh, the Midnight Special. And so Friday nights we would, you know, we would stay up till midnight, and it was always real exciting to, to see the band, see what they look like, how do they move, and stuff like that. And uh, so I was in the third grade, eight years old. I saw that classic video for Bohemian Rhapsody, and it just completely blew my mind. And I knew then that I really wanted to be a rock singer, and um, I made some attempts in, you know, at that age to write songs. And of course my songs were, you know, really silly. You know, I was writing about UFOs right. and things like that. But, um, um, but I was trying to write songs. Um, the only instrument I played was drums and I didn't pick up guitar until I was, uh, until I was 18. And uh, then my songwriting began to improve exponentially. Now, what was, as you were getting older, what was the music scene like in, in Arizona? And I know you're probably, you're my age, so you prob did you fall in between new wave and metal? Like, when you were getting older and putting bands together, like, say, when you're 18, 19, or 20, what was your music genre that you were listening to? And uh, 
really ended up having a huge influence on me. And so by the time I was 20, I was headed in much more just a, a rock direction, uh, listening to things like uh, Cheap Trip and Tom Petty. And um, I, uh, one of my other favorite bands was The Church. And, um, you know, so I was headed in a, in a guitar-based rock direction with some new wave influence, but, uh, you know, the college rock of the day, things like R.E.M., were, uh, you know, were a tone for the kind of music I wanted to, to write. So what was one of your first bands you joined? I mean, you joined, uh, what was what band did you start? Like, what time did you start playing in bands? Yeah, the, the, the first bands... The first real band that I was ever in was Jim Blossoms. Um, I I was a, like what I I was what I call a bedroom songwriter. And one of those guys that I was constantly writing songs and I was doing open mic nights and stuff. But I had never been in a band. And some of my friends from Tower Records and I we you know we had a few jam sessions here and there, and then we we were finally going to start a band. Me and my my friends from Tower, and we, we, I went out and bought my first uh, microphone, and we had our first rehearsal, uh, learning a couple of my songs, and then within a few weeks of that, I got offered uh, the chance to audition for Jim Blossoms. Now, how, so, did, um, how did they find out about you? Because it's I, not like now, it's not like now when you sit there and you go on YouTube, I mean, I know there was music papers, and you know Phoenix probably had, and Arizona probably had a nice, uh, tight knit musical scene, just like Philadelphia did. But how did they find out about you? If, as you said, you were a bedroom writer, you really weren't known in the community. What happened? Well, I was working at Tower Records with the Jim Blossom's bass player Bill Lee, and uh, most of the people in the Tempe music scene, if you didn't work at Tower Records, you knew or you were friends someone that did and so I knew Bill also we had gone to the same high school together he was a few years older than me but um, so I knew Bill and then one night I, we were at a party and I was playing guitar at this party and Doug Hopkins was there and Doug heard me singing and um, when the Jim Rossens had, had already formed and they needed to replace a guy who had a bad drug problem. So they fired their original rhythm guitar player, and Dan suggested to Bill that he had just heard me singing at this party and thought that I might fit in pretty well. So at this point, I was working across the street at a different record store called Zia Records, and uh, I answered the phone over at Zia Records with Bill working over a tower record across the street, and he asked me to audition for Jim Blossoms. And I, I had just had my first rehearsal with my other friends, and so I kind of, and also I was terrified. Uh, I, was, I thought, you know, the Jim Blossoms were out of my league, and the idea of being in that band made me sort of nervous, because they were, Bill and Bob were already veterans of our music scene. So um, I went out that night to go see Timothy Leary give a talk, and I was with my friend, and I told him, hey, the gymnast asked me to audition, but I turned it down. 
And my friend said, Robin, you're an idiot. You know, the, the Jim Dawson's are a working band, a real band. And if you were to join them, you'd be playing real shows, like, right away. And he said, you're just, you're an idiot. And I realized that the, the reason I turned them down is just because I was so intimidated. So, uh, I got the courage up the day I, on my way to work at Zero Records, I brought by Tower, because I knew Bill would be there. And uh, I went and, I went and talked with Bill, and I told him, all right, I'll, I'll try out for Jim Bell. And um, so that was a Wednesday. That was a Wednesday night. I, uh, or maybe I guess it was a Tuesday. So I went over and saw Bill, and I said, I'll audition. And so I auditioned that night. Or the next day, I auditioned on a Wednesday, and then they said, you're in, and we played Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night at uh, Long Rock. So I hadn't, I went from agreeing to being, being in the band to doing three shows, like the next, starting the next day. What was that like? Um, I mean, you're sitting there, as you said, you didn't really have a major uh, stage presence. You hadn't been on stage a lot. And next thing you know, you're playing live. I mean, it must be, it must have been probably more terrifying than your audition. Yeah, you know, I don't remember being scared at the shows as much as I just was really excited. And uh, the, the first show that I did with them on Thursday night, I, I had only had time to learn eight songs. So I was only on stage for eight songs, and then they, they let me sing uh, two songs. We did some covers, like, uh, I think we did a little bit of So then Friday night, by Friday night I had learned like 12 songs. And uh, it was just, you know, immediate roller coaster, you know, from the moment I agreed to join the band. Suddenly I was, you know, in the most exciting band in town and we were playing all the time. And over the course of the next couple of months, again, I started out singing just two songs. Jesse Valenzuela was the lead singer and I had been hired as the rhythm guitar player. And as a guitar player, I was way, way out of my league. And I was struggling to, to keep up. But... Um, when they would give me the microphone and let me sing lead, you know, I just, uh, I was really good at that. And so within a few months, I remember Jesse, he came up to me, he took me aside and he said, hey, Rob, we're going to switch. I'm going to be the guitar player and you're going to be the lead singer. And I was just so relieved. <laughs> I was so relieved and so happy that I was not going to have to be uh, the guitar player. You know, because I, I knew by that point that I, 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 you know, I had always wanted to be the lead singer in a band, and that was always my intention, to be the lead singer. So it was a relief because, again, I was out of my league as a guitar player, and it was exciting because I was going to be the lead singer in, in the coolest band in town. So uh, it just felt like, you know, I was in the right place at the right time with the right skill set, and from the moment I stepped into the band, I, I began to have an influence on the, you know, the type of, 
type of cover songs that we were doing and the stage presence of the group and it was a it was a lot of fun and it was a lot of work we were playing four or five nights a week and i was still in college full time and um it was exhausting but it was it was really exciting now and uh obviously again i was in the I, I i'm one of those people that are so lucky that i found my place in the world you know and that i was it seemed like it was destined for me to be there at that time and to join Jim Watson. Now, how did the first, how did your record deal come about? Well, uh, it started by uh, us being declared by the Phoenix New Times the best band in Phoenix for two years in a row. In 88 and 89, we won the Best of Phoenix Award. And... We were selected by the New Times to go and represent them at South by Southwest in 1989. And so that was super exciting. You know, as a young musician, I, I mean, I'm sure it still is a big deal to go to South by Southwest. And in the 80s, it, it was a really big deal. And we thought, well, we're going to go there and we're going we're gonna to walk away with a recording contract. You know, we figured we would we would probably have a recording contract before we left Austin. And it didn't work out that way. So we went, you know, went back home. And, but then labels and people started coming to Tempe to see us. And we became associated with OSCAP. Uh, for those of you who don't know, they're one of the organizations that uh, protects songwriters and collects uh, performance royalties. So we started working with ASCAP, and they had a, a monthly showcase gig in Hollywood at the Coconut Teaser. I remember that place. And so we started, <laughs> yeah, we started driving out from Tempe once a month to play at this ASCAP showcase at the Coconut Teaser, and uh, so we did that for like eight months in a row, and. We went back to Austin in, in, uh, in 1990 and we performed at the ASCAP showcase there at South by Southwest. And that's when it really started to happen for us. There was a lot of hype around the band when we got there. The Austin Chronicle named us one of the 10 best acts of South by Southwest 1990. And within a few months of that, major labels were flying us around the country to wine and dine us. We were going to New York to visit with MCA. We were having dinner with Warner Brothers. Uh, people were flying to Phoenix or they were flying us out to Los Angeles and we were meeting all these labels and we were being courted by, you know, all the majors. And when we met with a&M Records are, um, you know, they, they threw us this huge dinner on the beach and we had this private room right on the beach with these amazing views and I remember walking into that room and thinking, let's, let's sign with A&M. I think they win. <laughs> and um, also that year when we, when we did South by Southwest in 1990, we managed to put together like a five-day tour that took us through Houston, Texas and um, Dallas, and then we went on to New Orleans, and we played at Tipitina's, 
And the A&R guy who signed us to A&M, we were still in the courting stage, and to impress us, he got Peter Buck of R.E.M. to come and see us at Tipitina's. And it was, you know, partially, it was mostly just to impress us, but it was uh, casually being talked about that maybe Peter Buck would produce us. And so after the show, there's Peter Buck in our dressing room, you know? It was, it was amazing. We were real excited to talk to him, and he started talking about our songs, and he knew the title of our songs. And there was this moment where he referred to Hey Jealousy, and all five of us all of a sudden, like, stepped towards him and, like, sort of surrounded him. We really wanted to hear what he was about to say about our songs. And, um, uh, you may remember around that time, R.E.M. was in pre-production for their record, Out of Time. And Peter was telling us how he was playing a lot of mandolin. He was taking mandolin lessons. And then when Out of Time was released, the lead single was Losing My Religion. And basically it's the same riff as Hey Jealousy. And so we all kind of looked at each other and thought, did we influence R.E.M.? Right. Is that what just happened here? <laughs> and so I, I, think, uh, I think it's safe for us to take a little bit of the credit for, um, for influencing R.E.M. And um, again, if you listen to Losing My Religion, it sounds a lot like that riff is a lot like Hey Jealousy. What was it like? I mean, hey, okay. did you know Hey Jealousy would be such a huge hit? And it's one of the songs, you know, it still has legs. You know, people, I was thinking earlier today, you know, you know, we're the same age. So we grew up at a different time when you when you went to a grocery store or a bank, they played crappy music. But now it's like I go to the shop right across the street and I hear Brian Ferry. You know, places play cool music now. Did you ever think that that song would have the legs it still does to this day? That every it's one of those songs that everybody knows. No, I honestly didn't see that one coming. I, I knew that "Found Out About You" was a hit, and I felt like "Allison Road" was a hit. But "Jealousy," I didn't really see it that way. And in fact, there was you know we were we would talk you know, amongst us in the band, you know, about what songs would would be the single, and no one was talking about Hey Jealousy. And around that time, after we had gotten signed, Doug and I had a conversation about what kind of song we wanted to, to be our first single, what sort of, what kind of impression do we want to make on on people. And... I was saying, well, I want something that's kind of hard, something that's kind of like cheap trick, and something that's really upbeat and kind of fast. And Doug, based on that conversation, Doug went out and started writing Hold Me Down, uh, which is on New Miserable Experience. And then he came to me, and I helped him finish the lyrics, and I, I wrote the bridge. And that was what we, Doug and I, agreed that was the song 
that we wanted to be the first single and that we, we thought was the right kind of song to represent Jim Blossoms. And so Doug and I were in cahoots even after, you know, he had been fired and Miserable Experience was going up the charts. Doug and I were still talking about trying to get Hold Me Down released as a single. And no one at the label saw it that way. And from the beginning, the label was always talking about, hey, jealousy as a single. And I remember kind of going, really? Are you sure? I don't, no, no, come on, you know, not a jealousy. But uh, there's obviously something about the song, you know, that, that taps into something really primal. And uh, so in answer to your question, no, I didn't, I could have never predicted Hey Jealousy wouldn't not only be a hit single, but would be something as timeless as it turned out to be. Now, as a band, you know, as you said, you you say you feel blessed. You know, you worked at Tower Records. You got the shot because you were at the right place at the right time. And then you guys started getting courted. But your the the new miserable experience had a meteor. It was meteor. Meteor. I can't say it's like a meteor. It was it, it sold and it sold a lot and you caught on. What is it like for a musician when all of a sudden you were getting courted, you were getting wooed? But then all of a sudden you start hearing yourself on the radio and it's not like they're playing you once every two days. They're playing you a lot. What goes through your mind when you start hearing yourself on the radio? Well, as much as that, what was really exciting was seeing it on MTV all the time. You know, I was a big, big fan of MTV and so I would come home from the road and like I would normally do, not even thinking about my band, I would just put on MTV, and then all of a sudden, pow, we're in the middle of the mix. It was, you know, it's very exciting, and you you can't help but be somewhat caught up in yourselves and start to think, oh my God, we're really, we're really doing it. We're, we're really in the fight, and we're a part of the scene. <laughs> and... Um, it's it's exciting and it's really gratifying. And I remember once there was a there was a special, a Dennis Leary comedy special, where he was being interviewed with Kurt Loder, and Dennis Leary made a joke about <laughs> Kurt Loder because Kurt Loder was acting all distracted, and he said something like, "Well, I'm having a bad week," and Leary goes, "So oh, what happened? Did Jim Watson's break up?" <laughs> and it just blew, it blew me away, and I'm, I I remember thinking, "Holy crap, we're we're a part of like the national music conversation." You know? Now I got to ask you about the videos because you know I I know I talked to Nick Haywood from Haircut One Hundred, and they had no idea what the video was going on when Love Plus One was on, and a lot of these other guys who were just in the beginning of MTV, like Flock of Seagulls, Mike Score said that like the budget was so low, but then you talk, the budget started getting higher. What was the budgets on your videos, and did you get to pick your director, or how did that whole process happen? Uh, that's it's a great question. Um, the, the budget for the hey Gel, the first Hey Jealousy video was $5,000, and so we, we made this video, and it was terrible. Um, it got played a few times, but um, it was terrible. So then the label decided, well, we're going to remake the Hey Jealousy video, and one of the vice presidents at our label 
guy named Jim Guerno, he decided he was going to direct the video. So we made a second video for Hey Jealousy for another $5,000. And then it was, the song was finally going to break. In the spring of 93, there was apparently a conversation between MTV programming directors and the people at A&M Records. And MTV said, if you make a real video for Hey Jealousy, we will break this band. So suddenly the budget shot up to $30,000. And they, they were sending me these uh, reels of videos uh, so I could pick out a director. And I'm watching these videos, and they're all from bands that I have never heard of before. And, uh, you know, these were, these were the $30,000 videos. And so, you know, I chose a director for the Hey Jealousy video that everybody's familiar with. I don't remember who did that one. But then, um, so Hey Jealousy's a hit. The next video is going to be found out about you. And they start, they sent me these reels, and I'm watching videos from Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, and I realized then, wow, they are... <laughs> really, really serious now because the budget shot up to $100,000 for the Found Out About You video. And again, more significant than that, the samples they were sending me were from bands that I had heard of. So that's how I knew that the Found Out About You video was, was going to be like a, a, a much bigger deal and it was going to be a real high-quality video. And uh, to this day... I think it's it's my favorite of our videos, and uh, that director, his name was David Fogan, I think that was his name, and they asked me, well, what do you, what, what do you want to do? What is the, what's the concept? And I said, well, you know, we spend all our time in these hotels, and they're really surreal, and they have these really, really long hallways that, you know, they're so long, they actually make you dizzy walking down them, you know, the perspective freaks you out. And so um, that was what I told David Hogan I wanted to do with the video, was something to do with a hotel, and uh, that's what we shot. It's like uh, all this sort of surrealistic footage of hotels and weird people hanging out in them. It's so crazy because, you know, videos, you know, as I said, in our age group, they they really made an effect on us. You know, as now as much, I know kids have YouTube, but it's not like you can just sit and watch, you watch MTV and there's like the most crappy programming. But at the time, MTV could really break a band and it seemed to help you guys that they helped break you and they liked you, which was great because a band like The Replacements who never wanted to make videos, they always got pretty much penalized by that. <laughs> they did indeed. Yeah, and you know, the, the Replacements, they released that video for Bastards of Young and it was just a single shot of a speaker cone <laughs> playing their song. You know, they were they were so rebellious and so against it. And um, you know, it's funny. Here we are in the future. We have uh, our newest record, Mixed Reality, came out last June. And you know, I really wanted to make a video, and our label. Uh, didn't even want to pay for one, but we managed to convince them to put up some money, and they gave me three thousand dollars to make a video. God. And so um, 
I had an idea. I had already decided I was going to make the, the, the video, um, the Somerset break, and I had this idea that I wanted to shoot, and I had decided that I was going to pay for it myself if I had to. And um, when the label offered us $3,000, I was really relieved. And it ended up costing about uh, $3,700, so I put up $700 out of my own pocket uh, to make that video. And then the video budgets are gone, but I still wanted to make more videos. I had these ideas, and so I, I spent $2,000 out of my own pocket to make the next video uh, for uh, a song called Face the Dark. And then uh, just recently, I'm putting the final touches on another video that I paid for myself, and that's for a song called Mega Pond King. And um, with Mega Pond King, I, I shot the whole thing myself. I spent $600 on the editing, and then I sent my bandmates a, a rough edit, and I said I was kind of hoping that you guys would help me pay for this. <laughs> and so... Uh, I'm expecting the, my bandmates to give me $150 each for the money that I put up for our most recent video. Well, there so, you go. <laughs> go figure. It's, it's funny. We, you know, here we are in the future. We're making more videos than we ever have. And nobody really sees that. See, that's what's <laughs> weird. You know, that's, that's, what I, that's what I was going to ask you. Because... You know, you guys were also on SNL. You were on Letterman. You were on Tonight Show. Back then, that made a difference. Like, how would it, how did it affect your record sales after you did Saturday Night Live? Because it used to be a big thing. We'd be excited, you know, about the band. Now, I don't really watch SNL, but my fiance loves it. But she always pretty much fast forwards to the musical group. She doesn't really know who they are. But how did those appearances affect you guys? Well, they were exciting, and it was just a part of the routine that we were in in those days and we were just constantly on tour and constantly doing press and it started to just become routine for us to do things like the Tonight Show. We did the Tonight Show three times, we did Letterman eight times and it was, uh, you know, it, was, it became somewhat routine but at the same time it was exciting and um, Saturday Night Live was a big one. I had, you know, since I had been a kid, I always wanted to be on that show. And that was actually on my bucket list. I, I made a list of things that I wanted to accomplish as a singer when I was like 18 years old. And one of the things on that list was appear on Saturday Night Live. So we were very fortunate um, that we had a connection at Saturday Night Live. The director, Beth McCarthy, was a friend of my, uh, my fiancé. And uh, Beth lobbied really hard to get us on the show. And so uh, we have to give uh, Beth a lot of credit. And um, as it turned out, my, my ex was hired just a few months after we were on Saturday Night Live. My ex was hired as the floor director. And she's been there ever since. I think this is her 23rd year as the floor director at uh, Saturday Night Live. So, so uh, my, my son has kind of grown up around that place, and he knows all of those people. And when uh, when Keenan Thompson gets a new GoPro camera that he doesn't new, need or whatever, it ends up in my son's bedroom. 
Okay. So, uh, <laughs> And that's one, also one of the reasons that I stayed in New York is that I knew it was going to benefit my son a great deal uh, to be around that environment. And uh, at this point, it looks like, you know, one of these days, my son is probably going to be working for Jimmy Fallon or Seth Meyers or get some kind of job inside that life. That's so. awesome. Now, I got a question. You know, after, you know, New Miserable Experience was like four times platinum. Congratulations, I'm sorry, it was 10 times platinum. And then right a little bit after that, you guys broke up. Not too much longer after that album. What led to the breakup? Well, we just weren't really getting along, you know. Um, And everything was so exhausting, and it just felt like it should be more fun. And uh, in particular, you know, I wasn't really getting along very well with Jesse Nelson's way that we were always clashing. And I just kept thinking about, you know, my younger self and what I thought it was going to be like to be in a band. And I really wanted to try something differently. So, um, and at the time, like, our bass player, Bill, he was really unhappy. I mean, he's always been the conscience of the band. And he's always been, like, the uh, how, how we read whether or not we're being a bunch of sleazy show business shills or if we're being true to our uh, rock and roll ethics. And Bill was particularly upset uh, this this one summer when we were out in 96, and uh, there was a moment where he, he came out of the bus and he's just like, I'm going home, I can't take this anymore, I'm sick of it, we, we suck, we suck compared to what we used to be. And uh, I can't take this anymore, and I'm going home. And I just, I just looked up at him and I said, "Well, Bill, I'm, I'm leaving the band." And it totally deflated his, his whole rant. <laughs> and, um, um, so, you know, then I was convinced to stay in the band, and we were going to make another record. We had just, we had decided. Uh, Bill and I had a, a conversation. He came to see me when I was in New York, and we went down to Washington Square Park, and he said, "Let's let's keep it together. Let's make another record. Let's let's not break up." And so I agreed to stay in the band, and then a few months later, we were we were playing at the Arizona State Fair, and backstage, I said, "Okay, so when are we going to make this next record?" and Jesse and Bill, the way I remember it, it was either Jesse or Bill, said, no, nah, we've decided it's not going to be any fun, so we're not going to do it. And I was like, oh, okay, well, then I'm, I'm going off to do my other thing. And uh, what I ended up doing, my plan all along had been to finally form that group with my friends from the back room at Tower Records. And so I called those guys up, and we started our band, which we called Gas Giants. Yeah. And um, so, so for a few years, I was in Gas Giants, and Bill and uh, Bill didn't do anything musically for a few years. Jesse and Scott formed a band called the Low Watts. And um, you know, I I signed a, I signed a deal with A and M Records uh, for Gas Giants, and. Um, they gave me a, an awesome recording contract, a big fat pile of money, and I built my studio, and I paid for this incredibly expensive album cover. I spent like twenty five grand on the artwork for the album, and um, it was a glorious, 
time for a while, you know. We had a satellite dish on the studio. We got the full NBA package. And uh, we were just living this rock and roll dream. And we made our we made our debut record, the Gas Giants album, and we turned it in. And um, then A&M got swept up in that merger with uh, the, the whole Seagrams thing went down in like 1998. And A&M was merged with Geffen and Interscope. And uh, so our album got, was, was fully in the can, fully mastered, artwork was done, and then the merger happened. And the record sat on the shelf for over a year, and they didn't know who was going to run the whole thing. They were trying to decide if they were going to make, uh, when they merged Interscope, Geffen, and A&M, who was going to run the whole thing. Was it going to be our guy at A&M? Was it going to be David Geffen? Or was it going to be Jimmy Iovine? And so it took about a year for them to figure it out, and eventually it was decided that A&M and Geffen would be absorbed into Interscope. And Jimmy Iovine was going to run the whole thing, and then we and about 300 other bands all got dropped on the same day. And uh, I remember calling that Black Thursday. So our album only got dropped. So I have the distinction of being signed by David Anderley and dropped by Jimmy Iovine. So yay. Um, I got that going for me. So now, now you guys got back together again to Jim Blossoms. How did that happen? Because as you said, you know, the big rant and you sort of stepped on the rant. So egos may have, has, may have been ruffled a little bit. How does a band get back together when they've broken up? And also a band that had such huge success and walked away. Well, uh, you know, struggling with our other bands, it humbled everybody. And... We were getting these offers to do big Jim Blossom shows. We got paid a fortune to reunite for the um, uh, for New Year's Eve 2000. And we got this huge pile of money to put together a Jim Blossom show in, on New Year's Eve 2000. And that was, you know, that was really a sort of a shock. You know, it's like here our other bands are just struggling and we can't make any headway but people are falling over themselves and throwing piles of money at us to be the gym blossoms. And so that, you know, that started to creep into your thinking. And then around that time, I had written a song, and I was recording a demo of it with a friend of mine. And my friend said, Robin, that's a gym blossom song. And when I heard that, I kind of realized, well, you know, if I'm writing music that sounds like the Jim Blossoms and people are offering the Jim Blossoms opportunities, you know, maybe it's time to to get back together again. And so I called the other guys and I said, well, you know, let's let's see if there's any offer. If people want to put us out on tour, then, then we ought to think about doing it. So we just kind of agreed to put our bullshit aside and make it work for the sake of the greater good. And Bill put it best in those days when we were getting back together. Bill said, everybody in the band has the right to their own Jim Blossom's experience. And that's sort of been the philosophy, I think, that has 
kept us together since then. You know? you? And um, it's about, you know, compromise. There's, a, there's so much compromise involved in being in a band like ours. You know, it's not like the Foo Fighters where Dave Grohl runs the whole thing. Uh, in Jim Blossoms, it's very much a democracy. And no one's vote is any more important than anybody else's. And so we have to compromise a great deal with each other. And I've learned, I've accepted that there's something that we do together, there's a sound that we make together that we cannot make with any other combination of members. And it's something special that has touched people and is a, is a part of the, the big rock and roll story. And I, you know, we just all have to keep our egos in check to make it work for the sake of the entire band. Well, with the uh, band, with the band. One other thing, I also, one other side note on all that is I I give our kids a lot of the credit, too, because eventually we all had kids, and I started to feel like we were in it for them as well, and that getting all of our kids through college was an obligation we had to each other. Well, I was going to ask you, you know, you, you have had kids and you guys have gone through your ups and downs, but you figure, you know, New Merzel Experience was a huge hit in 92, and in 2018 you came out with Mixed Reality. How had you, how has your writing changed? I know you said, you know, when you write, some people say that's a Jim Blossom song, but in that time, I mean, that's 26 years, how has your writing style changed? Well, it ha- I don't know that it's changed all that much. It's just, it's gotten better and, you know, we're more seasoned, you know, just as, as craftsmen, um, you know, we're just, we're just better at it. And, um, uh, but, you know, emotionally, it's not really different. And the technical process of actually putting a song together really hasn't changed at all. You know, I still, I still do it kind of the same way I did when I was 20 years old. You know, I have, I have a few different ways that I write songs. I, I keep a, a notebook full of lyrical ideas, which are usually like song titles. And a lot of times you can write a whole song around just the title. And then other times I'll create a melody with the guitar and a, a vocal melody to go along with it. And I'll just keep, you know, humming that until some lyric falls into place. And um, and then there's collaborating, where, you know, so Jesse might give me a song with that he already has pretty well structured. You know, the, the chords are there and the title is there. And it's up to me just to write the verses and maybe a bridge. And so what I do in that situation is I concentrate on what is the lyrical idea that Jesse's already suggested, what is the name of the song, and how do I complete that thought? How do I write a verse of lyrics that relates directly to what I've already been presented with? And uh, it takes a a lot of concentration. Um, Writing lyrics, sometimes it happens really, really fast. But most of the time, it's a matter of brute force and just uh, concentrating really hard on trying to complete 
the thought and complete a sentence or a, you know a paragraph of words that all relate to the theme that's already been established. Now, in mixed reality, do you put an emphasis on how your tracks are listed? Because that was always, you know, growing up, you remember, you know, side one, side two. And I know people don't do side one and side two. People do still do vinyl. But it was the track listing always made it a flow. Because you've, you know, been in the business for a long time and you grew up, you know, when you saw Queen change your world and Queen's albums were like that too. Like, you know, Fat Bottom Girls and Bicycle Race run right together. Do you, when you put the uh, Mixed Reality album together, did you have a certain song order that you really wanted to be in? Well, I did, but we were working with this, we were working with this great production team, uh, Don Dixon and Mitch Easter. And uh, Don was producing the record and Mitch recorded it. And for people who don't know, these are the guys that recorded the first three R.E.M. records. And Don Dixon went on to produce some of my other favorite albums by The Smithereens and Marshall Crenshaw. And uh, when we were first signed to A&M, we were asked, well, what producers do you want to work with? And Don Dixon was definitely a part of those conversations. And we had decided at the time uh, to go with John Hampton because when, when I found out that John Hampton had recorded both Tommy Keene and The Replacements, I was like, well, that, that's where we're going. Let's do that. Let's be a part of that world. The big star, Tommy Keene, the replacements. I want to be a part of that world. So we ended up with John Hampton. And so here we are in the future, and we got to work with Don Dixon. So to answer your question, I wanted Don to sequence the record. I, I thought it was important that as, as much as I wanted to, would want to do it myself, um, it's one of those areas where I feel like if, if I impose too much of my will on this record, it's going to alienate my bandmates. So I have to sort of step back and allow other people to have, you know, equal shares of influence on the, on the overall product. So I knew I wanted Don to sequence the album, but I did have some suggestions for him. So I, I had told Don, I really think the record needs to start with Greg, and I think it needs to end with Mega Pond King. Which, to me, felt like the first and last songs on the record. And Don basically sequenced the rest of the album. And uh, it's, it's very difficult at times to remove yourself from those types of decisions. It takes a great deal of willpower, at least for me. You know, I think like, Jesse is pretty good at just turning in a song and then separating himself from it emotionally somewhat. And I am not like that. I'm really, I'm really, really attached to to the songs that I write and the songs of mine that end up being recorded. And um, I guess I'm somewhat heavy-handed in, in, in that sense, you know? I have to allow my bandmates to play the song the way they want to play it, and I can't, you know, I can't just be a total dictator when I'm when they're producing and arranging the, the, the music. I have to step back. I can sort of influence them a little bit, but 
again, because our group is a democracy. Um, everyone gets to have their own Jim Blossoms experience. That you know, it was it. It's important for me to step back and not control everything. Now, do you? Con- do that you- being said, I still get accused of trying to control everything. Now, do you control? Do you control the set list when you guys play live? Well, that's always been a part of my skill set, and one of the things that. Uh, the band has always allowed me to do, you know. It's a somewhat tedious practice, but it's something that I've been doing for so many years that they, they basically let me, uh, for the most part, write the set, or at least sequence the set. You know, we all have some agreements about what music is in the set, but uh, generally I, I sequence our, our sets. And... Um, funny i got another gig coming up this next month and uh, i don't know if you've heard but i'm going to be singing lead for the smithereens okay uh soon and uh so for obvious reasons i'm very very excited about that and um so the smithereens i'm just getting to know these guys i obviously i know their music really really well but um i'm just getting to know the guys in the band and they have a certain way that they sequence the set. They started a certain way, they ended a certain way, certain tunes always belong together, that sort of thing. And uh, for our upcoming shows in the Smithereens, I actually had the balls to write out a set, and I emailed them all, and I, you know, I said, I, I know you do things a certain way, but I humbly submit my idea for the Smithereens set, and I'm hoping you'll kind of go along with me. <laughs> so I still haven't gotten the final word back on whether or not they're going to do my set or if they're going to do what they usually do. Now, but, when uh, when are you going to start? Tour- enough. <laughs> when, when are you going to start touring with them? When does that happen? Yeah, it starts in just a few weeks. Our first, we're playing the 10th, 11th, and 12th of. January, and so um, pretty psyched about that. We're playing in New York City on a Saturday night, and uh, here we are in the future, and I'm fronting the Smithereens. It's uh, it's pretty incredible. That's awesome. There's probably only five bands that could have called and said, would you be willing to do it? You know, like if R.E.M. called, I'd be like, yeah, I can handle that, you know. Um, If U2 called, okay, I could probably do a U2 show um but the smithereens is one of the few bands that i i'm that familiar with their music to where i could just i could step in and uh and sing lead for them so it's a miracle of coincidence and chaos mathematics that that i got this gig and i'm super super excited about it well that's awesome man you know i want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me um and so I know the website is for the Jim Blossoms is jimblossoms.net, but you guys are on tour with the Jim Blossoms right now. You have some dates coming up. I mean, this will air after you've done the two in the Canyon Club in Pasadena, but you'll be in my area in Philadelphia. And I just want to thank you because, you know, your, your music means a lot to the people. And now that you're singing with the Smithereens, I mean, that's totally cool. So people, go, go check Robin Wilson out. Go check, go buy the Jim Blossom albums. Go buy Smithereen albums just to support them and then go see them in concert. So people... 
And check out our YouTube channel, please, because we've got all these videos, and uh, I really want our fans and people who are interested in our music to see the videos we're making these days. So people, check that out. Remember, hit me up on uh, Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. Follow me. That's my address. Follow me at Cooper Talk one on Instagram. Email me at Cooper at CooperTalk.net. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks.